Good evening, folks. We are coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown. You're listening to the award-winning Info Hub Hour with Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. The Info Hub Hour is all about news and engagement in Germantown. Check us out and see what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org. We are always learning, no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, and no matter how much knowledge you hold. Learning provides people with a sense of fulfillment. It enables you to do more and be confident in doing so. Learning is infinite, and so are all the opportunities that learning can bring. Today, our listeners will get to learn about a new meaningful project that a local organization, Men Who Care, have been working on. To speak about that, we welcome Clayton Justice, who has been garnering support for the Philadelphia Collegiate School for Boys. Thank you for being on today's show with us, Clayton. How are you doing today? Hi, good good evening, Rashida. And first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm doing quite well and was excited uh, when we met uh, at that event that Stephen, I'm sorry, they got the guy from uh, the Black Writers Museum at Supreme Dow was doing. And when you mm-hmm. approached me and we had a brief conversation and you you know said that this would be a great idea for me to come on the show and talk about, you know, what we've been doing, you know, with this project. You know, I felt excited to have an opportunity to do so because it's been an amazing journey and a wonderful ride. No, absolutely. And we wanted to make sure that you got that journey out and people knew more about it. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, so first, just tell our neighbors a little bit more about Men Who Care as an organization and what you all have been up to for the past year. So this has actually been a very exciting year for Men Who Care. We're actually celebrated this past Saturday, our 10th anniversary And we usually would have an annual community outreach event, which is really just designed to bring the community together and fellowship and peace and love. And it's a way for us to also showcase and highlight some of the amazing work that other individuals and organizations are doing in our community, just to make sure that people are aware of who's doing what. But at the same time, bring the awareness that one of our mantras is reviving the village mentality in our community because I think as a black community we thrive when we were a village and we're trying to kind of like resurrect that so having that community outreach festival every year is a way of achieving that and so essentially we are involved in youth empowerment and education and we have a mentorship program called Real Talk with Men Who Care. We have a strategic partnership with the Philadelphia School District and basically what we do is we go into our local schools in the Northwest And we have real conversations with our young men and women, trying to inspire them and trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. And what we do is try to provide advocacy opportunities to give them real, real, real resources in real time to help them on that journey. But ultimately, we want to teach them that it's okay to dream and we try to help them pursue those dreams. Aside from that, we have a a weekly food distribution program. where We feed about 150 to 200 people in the community every single Saturday. We have a partnership with the Philadelphia Share Program. Um, we have a college scholarship initiative. We'll provide scholarships to college-bound students that come from financially challenged background. And most importantly, we were looking to, you know, ensure that people know that there's an organization that primarily has their back and has the interest of not only the youth, but also our aging population and also partnering with uh, local organizations that have like-minded initiatives to ensure that we're not in silos and that we partner to ensure that we get the most out of our organizations. 
So all of that work really sounds very impactful. And I'm I'm very sure that it takes hard work and dedication to coordinate that, right? So Clayton, can I just ask how you learn how you learned how to organize? I know it's really a skill to do so um, as an organizer myself. And I'm always just really curious to just know how other organizers built their skills. So I'll I'll tell this funny story because um, I got my uh, passion for community service in Camden, New Jersey. A friend of mine told me about an organization over there that was working with at-risk youth, and they were a bunch of people that were very, very organized. And so I cherry-picked a lot of what I do from them and, you know, kind of like uh, learning through experience. And so when I first got involved with Men Who Care, and we're all a bunch of grassroots guys that literally grew up in Germantown and had great, you know, deep roots and ties even to this day. And I put together this laundry list of like things that we wanted to accomplish. And I put it in front of our now councilwoman, Cindy Bass, five years ago. And she said, how are you going to do all this? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I just want to do it. She said, listen, do me a favor. Just pick three things off the list. And so I was actually humbled that I, would, I could think and imagine that I could do all these things because I saw this vast need in our community. And so essentially, you know, we kind of narrowed it down to mostly focus on education and youth, looking out for our seniors and really trying to partner with, you know, like I said before, organizations that have like minded initiatives. We have real true synergies. And then it's just really, you know, again, just not reinventing the wheel and mimicking success. And there's a lot of good examples of organizations and individuals that do things a certain way. And we just kind of mimicked that and kind of made it our own and kind of gave it our own twist, so to speak. I hear that. And I think all of that is amazing. Now to shift to just your most recent initiative that we were talking about, the Philadelphia Collegiate School for Boys. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's a it's it's a given that it's a school for boys. Right. But why is there a need for it? Why this? Well, I think that I personally and members of my organization have seen firsthand how uh, young black boys, especially in schools in Germantown, which have historically underperformed, get marginalized. And there's a term called 21. And, and that basically means that it's kind of like a three strike rule. Like once, you know, boys and girls, you know, have a certain amount of disciplinary charges or actions against them, then they literally get kicked out of the school. And lots of times these kids don't have any alternatives. So I've seen close hand how kids at risk and what happens to them when they fall into that vacuum, you know, they feed, you know, the prison, the pipeline. Uh, these are kids that are playing out the violence that we see in our streets. And they're literally, you know, our lost souls, so to speak. And so Philadelphia Collegiate Boys School for Boys basically essentially targets those kids that are most at risk. And so when I met the founder, Jack Nell, who founded Philadelphia, I mean, Collegiate, Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys, he had an idea that he wanted to expand that concept of an all boys school that not only teaches them a fine arts liberal education, but also teaches them life skills and passion. And they have concepts like integrity, wisdom, honor, brotherhood, agency, which is teaching them how to advocate for themselves, as well as they give them a global experience whereby every boy by the ninth grade gets to go to another country and study at another school, which gives them a total different perspective, you know, as to just being solely in the silo of their own environment. So it kind of like broadens their 
horizon, so to speak. But the thing that really appealed to me is the citizenship and the stewardship, teaching these kids how to become successful, but then come back and give back to their community. And so the idea of having an all-boys school specifically targeting the most vulnerable and at-risk in our community and finding ways to reach them and build them up, because what I've witnessed and experienced is that these kids are extremely smart, they're bright, they're hungry, they want to, you know, be successful in life. It's just that they just had some bad luck along the way. And the system is set up to where these boys oftentimes, again, get marginalized and in some cases ostracized. So we just wanted to create a school that we can wrap our arms around these boys, bring them into a situation. And it's also richly cultural and rich. So they get to learn about their culture, their legacy, where they come from, they give them a sense of pride. And I just thought that if we could bring a school like that to Philadelphia, let alone to Germantown, it could be a beacon in that it can begin to slowly change not only the perception, but to try to slow down and start breaking some of those links that our kids are getting caught up into, again, that are feeding the negative things that are happening in our culture, like our boys, you know, into that pipeline to prison, uh, getting involved in, you know, um, violence and gangs at a very young age and, you know, kind of like being the enigma of our community instead of the, the beacons of our community. Wow, that's all very detailed. And that really seems like a quite effective approach. So this was denied by the school board, correct? Correct. Do you have, did they give you a reason as to why? Um, to be honest with you, because I'm just a bluntly honest person, um, I think that there's a silent moratorium against charter schools in Philadelphia because back way back when they were starting to grant these charters, I think that the, the, the district didn't really vet properly the individuals that they were granting these charters to. So lots of times they were granted them to businessmen who were in for-profit ventures and they didn't have an educational background. And there's no secret that a lot of charter schools failed miserably. There are still charter schools that are underperforming. And I just think like ultimately it was a black eye for the district because they denied not only our charter school application, but nine additional charter school applications. And so it wasn't like it was a major, you know, flaw against something that was missing in our process because we had the example that already exists successfully in Baltimore. It was just the blueprint that we were bringing to Philadelphia. So it wasn't a brand new concept. And besides, there is an all boys school here now that's a charter school, boys Latin. So I just think that the city right now is like, well, you know, it's a hot button topic. There's a lot of controversy in terms of what do charter schools actually do? Do they steal resources from the school district? Do they steal resources from the neighboring uh, public schools? And I just think that at the end of the day, it was an experiment that failed. And because it failed, they don't want to be a part of a potential another experiment that could potentially fail on their watch. And so instead of granting any charter school application, they just flat out denied them all. That's very interesting insight, very interesting insight, because I know that there has been some criticism against charter schools. Um, but throughout the summer, I know you've been gathering those signatures of support from the neighbors. So to get an appeal, it said that you needed 2,000 signatures. How many did you end up receiving? 
So actually the whole appellate process is they make you go back to the community that you went to initially because part of the charter school application was being able to demonstrate that the community wanted the school, um, the local businesses, politicians and community organizations wanted the school. And we actually had to get letters of intent from community leaders, stakeholders, uh, our local politicians, our business people, just to show that the community wanted the school, which we demonstrated in the original application. So the appellate process was, okay, you guys go back to your community and we want you to get a thousand certified petition signatures, meaning that the person that gathered this, the petition signatures had to get it notarized. And every signature had to be a resident of Philadelphia. So the mandate was to get at least a thousand. We wanted to get 1500 to give ourselves a cushion, but we ended up totally collecting 1,919 certified petition signatures. Wow. When I went out in the community, I created a really nice campaign going to local events, asking our community partners that supported the school initially. And I had like a whole village, if you will, of people going out, talking about the school and asking for their, their signatures. And you wouldn't believe how overwhelming people's response was positively to support our appeal because we resoundingly, unequivocally demonstrated that this community wants the school and those petition signatures are, you know, proof of that. And so you actually just said you, you're, you're leading into my next question, actually, um, because I know a lot of community outreach led to some strong discussions um, from community members, neighbors, parents, students. Um, so what were some of the reactions um, like any conversations specifically that you had? Just not, you know, no, nothing specific, no names, but just what people have said personally to you. I think probably it leads back to your original question. Why, boys? And I think that, you know, if anything, the questioning was, what about girls? What about okay. girls? And, you know, my you know, response to that was girls aren't marginalized as much. Girls aren't a part of a system that's a vacuum that are playing out in our streets in terms of the violence. Um, girls aren't at the same rate um, going to jail, to prison or going back to prison than boys are. And um, right now, you know, I use this terminology, you know, once upon a time, if young boys, especially black boys were going to get into trouble, if you will, it started at 15, 16, even 17. Right now, the streets are calling our boys at literally 12 years old, in some cases, 11, depending upon the lifestyle that these boys are witnessing and how it's being played out, not only in their intimate community, which means in the home and their extended family. Cause lots of times there are legacies of this sort of behavior that we see plaguing not only Philadelphia, but across the country of people that are either related or people who have grown up together. And so our boys are falling to the wayside at an alarming higher rate than girls. And so we also thought intellectually and even psychologically, 
if boys tend to get their lives together, then our girls seem to have their lives together because one goes hand in hand. I think that sometimes girls are dragged into the process that are plaguing our young men because they have relationships, right? There's like, you know, it's, it's known, a known fact. I learned this from women in charge that lots of time girls are carriers of their boyfriend's guns. Girls conceal um, or create an alibi for a boy that's perpetrated a crime. And I just think that this relationship is because the boys are sort of broken, if you will. And relationships are what they are, creates that type of loyalty. So I think that from if we can begin to reshape and in some cases reimagine how we can help our boys become productive citizens, I think it fixes a lot of other problems in our society and our communities. Thank you for that honest answer. And I just want to make sure that people are clear that you're not saying that these things don't happen to girls, right? But there's a higher alarming rate that it happens to boys. And in your, in your, with your reasoning is that you believe that if it affects one and we can help one, that it'll, it'll instantly help the other, right? Because it is a relationship and they are dependent on each other. So I just want to make sure that I clear that up so that, you know, nobody, so that, yeah, so that we can clear up every speculation that people have already said, like, why not a girl's school, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, kind of like a harsh reality. And I didn't mean to paint it that way. Right. But if, if you literally, you know, look at the statistics and these are statistics, just like a census, like you can get these numbers. I mean, it is, it is, it is a, it's grave in terms of the impact of poverty, disenfranchisement, marginalization, you know, lack of equity and resources. Um, when it comes to that, even like, let's say the dropout rate, boys are far more impacted by the social ills than girls are. Not to, discount that, not to discount that girls don't need help, not to discount that girls probably would also benefit from an all girls school like this. But I think that, again, if we can just begin to fix some of the issues associated with boys, I think it will organically change the dynamics of what girls are experiencing. No, absolutely. And I know that there are other reasonings for that. Right. So I know I looked on the website and one of the most interesting things that I saw, because I think same here, I kind of had the same concern. Right. Is that like, why not girls, too? Right. But then even when looking at the website, I seen that you all had it like spelled out that boys actually learn and develop differently from girls. So like, could you even talk about that a little more? I think, um, especially our boys, I think that there's like this new concept called uh, project-based learning. Um, And basically what that means is it's like learning in an unconventional way. So what's the conventional way, right? So a conventional way is you go to school, you sit down at a desk, the teacher goes up and she puts a lesson on board. So I could even use myself as an example. My brain is going out the window, right? So I'm already lost and I got to keep bringing myself back. I was a type of kid. I had to sit next to the teacher's desk because I would rather be doing something and learning instead of just being static and learning. And I think that girls are better at that than boys. Just genetically, just let's say I can use the word metabolistic wise in terms of their metabolism, boys tend to have more energy. And so they tend to be distracted a lot easier 
So why can't you do math and learn history and English or do math and learn cultural enrichment and have them go hand in hand or do math and be in a situation where it's interactive as compared to a chalkboard lesson? And I just think that projects-based learning is the way to teach our kids, not just boys, but girls as well. We thrive in an interactive environment. Why, do you, why is it not by design? We're good at athletics. We're good at doing things with our hands. Because if you look at our cultural historically, you go to an African village, those kids are what? They're very active throughout the day. And so our kids do learn differently. That's what this school is going to bring, a different way of teaching our kids, not discounting the value of a formal education, but it's just like everything. It's not for everybody. And I just think that those kids that may get marginalized, may get labeled, are these kids that just need to learn a different way. And that provides some context to as to why virtual learning has been kind of difficult for our kids in the last year too, right? So thank you for that connection. Um, and so what's different for, I mean, what's next for the school and how can community members continue to support this initiative? Well, right now um, there is a charter school appellate division in Harrisburg and a magistrate judge basically looks at the application with the prerequisites, which were those thousand signatures, and they kind of reopen up that application as it's being viewed for the first time. And uh, obviously, you know that this is a political process. And I think that, you know, now that it's at Harrisburg, we have our state representatives in Harrisburg and represent the various districts throughout the school. And so if you want to help in any way, you know, call your state rep in your district and say, listen, we want this school. So when you guys are having your meetings up in Harrisburg and there's things that you want to put on the floor, make sure you talk about the importance of having Philadelphia Collegiate School for Boys and make them understand that not only once, but twice, we satisfied every prerequisite. And in this application, it's a proven model. It has the data behind it to say it's successful. And more importantly, it has the community support. The community wants this school. I didn't hear not one person and all of the probably 3,000 people that I came in contact with collecting those 100, 919 signatures that flat out said, we don't want a school like this. Everybody resoundingly said, we want this school for our boys. And so that's the messaging that needs to channel up to Harrisburg. So when it comes time for this application to be reexamined, there are already conversations in those halls, you know, in those rooms supporting this school. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing all of that information about the school. Now, I just want to recenter and ask you just a few broader questions as a leader in Germantown. Um, are you OK with that? Sure. Absolutely. Great. So in the coming years, I know Germantown. Well, you're from Germantown, right? And so you said the men who care specifically as a group of people, you know, born and raised in Germantown who coming together for a change. Right. So Germantown will change. But who do you think will change the community? I think that there are a lot of like um, mechanisms. I mean, you know, communities will always turn over, right? 
It's just, that's and that's important. important. Change is really, really important. So I think probably the biggest change that's visible in Germantown is gentrification. And I think that gentrification can be a real good thing because it brings in urban renewal. It has an opportunity for resources to come back to a community that used to be in Germantown. Germantown used to be a thriving, bustling metropolis, you know, where they had department stores, every store on Germantown Avenue, on Shelton Avenue, had quality goods. And people really had to leave the community to want for anything. So what has really changed dramatically in Germantown? Our main high school has closed down. One of our local elementary schools that closed down. Because of those two institutions, we lost a lot of jobs and a lot of resources on the Germantown corridor. And so in the real estate market, there are a lot of people, individuals that bought up a lot of real estate holdings that are holding on to them that are cashing in now. And our community is gentrifying. So I like the fact that this change is happening, but what we do have to do is continue to protect the most vulnerable citizens in our community. Like we can't allow massive displacement to happen. We can't allow um, landlords to raise their rent so high that people can no longer afford to live in the community that they grew up in. And so these are the types of protective mechanisms that we're working along with our politicians to ensure that people really don't get displaced. Because Germantown historically has always been a, a ethnic melting pot. There's always been people from all races here in Germantown. Germantown is probably one of the uniquest you know, communities in all of Philadelphia because we've never truly been segregated, as well as looking at the historical contribution that the early pioneers, I'm talking about the Mennonites and the Quakers, helped in terms of you know, um, the abolition movement. They played a critical role in that. So those roots are deep in our culture. We just need to remind people that are here that we are different and we need to protect our most vulnerable citizens. Absolutely. I agree. And so the last time that we had you on, you mentioned a young man who was turning away from the streets. And so you said that you had lost contact with him. And we were kind of just curious to know if you had gotten back in contact with him. I know how important connections with the youth are. And so that was something that was on my mind. We were able to find Shane and uh, his mother ended up moving them, their family to Virginia um, okay. to give him, you know, more f- overall family support because it was just him and her and his two young brothers. And so she moved to Virginia where she had relatives and she had uncles and she had a support system that was able to, you know, support him a lot more than just our organization. And uh, he's doing well. He's in a trade vocational school and uh, we're still in communication with him. And as a matter of fact, uh, he was one of our recipients two years ago of our scholarship initiative. And so as long as Shane will be in school, no matter how far he go, we will continue to financially support his dream. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Very happy to hear that. Um, because youth, youth involvement is very important, right? And so I guess another, my last question for you would be, what spurs young people to push for their ideas? I think that I've learned to be a listener, Rashid, more so than my ideas is because one of the things in terms of just 
the violence in our community, and we're on that initiative too, is we have to begin to listen to our young people and more or less ask them what it is they would like to achieve. And our biggest asset to them is to pave a road for them to success and to give them those resources in real time. Because once you have their attention and they trust you and they open up to you, you have to be able to act in turn. And so it's not so much what I want for them. What do you want for yourself? Because that gives you empowerment. Mm-hmm. And then what we can do is find a way to connect them with the appropriate resources or agency or support or pathway to be successful. And if we do that, chances are they take that ball and they run with it. That was an amazing answer. And I thank you for that, Clayton. And thank you for being on the show. And of course, I just want to say we wish you the best of the rest of your process for the Philadelphia Collegiate School for Boys. And we look forward to hearing more updates on the school and for men who care. Um, So thank you so much for being here and take care, okay? Yeah, and I want to thank the uh, Germantown Info Hub. You guys have been amazing, not only to me, but to our organization and all the individuals that you guys, you know, bring to the show because you guys are a valuable resource in and of itself in terms of getting information out to our community. And, you know, ever since you guys created this program, it's, it's just been a real beacon. And every time I have an opportunity to come on the show, you know, just to share, you know, I, I feel like it's a privilege and an honor. So, you know, my kudos to you guys. You guys do an amazing job. You, know, you keep doing what you're doing and you allow us a platform to let people know what we're doing and how they can get the information that will bring this community that closer together. So thank you guys for this program. Thank you so much. And we received that and we'll talk to you soon. OK, thank you. Have a great day. That was Clayton Justice with Men Who Care. And so a few weeks ago, the school district reopened classrooms for children to be able to learn in person for the first time in a year. Learning in a virtual setting has proved to be a great challenge for most parents, students, and teachers. Today, we're inviting parent and entrepreneur Justina Ray to speak about her experiences in the last year. Justina, thank you so much for being on air with us today. We've been talking about learning and how it's been altered in the last year. And the Info Hub thought, what better way to touch on a subject than to have someone reflect on the past year? And here we are having that discussion. So again, thank you for being here. Justina, you've been a guest on the show before, but some may not remember. So you can just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yes. So last year, I and some colleagues, we were on the radio talking about how we contribute to uh, virtual learning. So I opened up a pandemic pod uh, specializing in elementary school virtual learning since the schools were shut down, um, was able to give the kids a small interaction with other children their age, as well as personal learning that they would get in a classroom, as well as extracurricular activities. Oh, cool. Is that still going on or has it like slowed down since people are going back to school? It's and slowed down since the kids were able to go back to school. Um, so how many kids do you have and how many are in school? I have three kids. So I have a 13-year-old in uh, Wissick and Charter, and I have an 11-year-old at Abington Friends and a one-year-old in daycare. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you have a whole squad. We love that. Mm -hmm. So a good majority of the schools have moved moved to remote learning last year. Did both of your children have to be home? So at different points in time. So my Mm -hmm. daughter was able to go to school in the spring. 
um, after they both started their year as remote. And my son, this would be his first year back. So he spent his entire sixth grade being virtual. Oh, wow. How was that? It, for him, it was a little bit difficult. He's a very hands-on student. So um, the format was not ideal for him. But we got through it. We got through it together. But ideally, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. It wouldn't be ideal for him. So it seems like you had your hands kind of full with the pandemic. Um, so can you just kind of describe a typical morning for what a school day would look like last year? Then, right? Because it's very different than if both kids are going to school. Mm-hmm. So um, generally, because um, daycares were closed too, so we still had our baby home with us. Um, kids have to get up in the morning, set them up somewhere where they're comfortable to learn to kind of sit um, on the computer ma- majority of the day. Um, both kids in different programs, so it's laptops everywhere. <laughs> um, when my daughter was able to go to school, it was a little different because it's one getting, you know, getting up, going and running, and then my son who was still virtual. I got you. So it definitely broke up the household. You know, one parent, you know, legit, it was hard to work. Yeah. Um, with all three kids home, it was impossible to work. Both of us were even, I was a remote working for social security at the time. And even being remote, I couldn't do my job. It was still too demanding. Um, and that's what prompted me to open up the pie. Cause I could have just imagined how many parents felt just like me. No, that's a really good point. Um, and it's another good point when you say like laptops everywhere, right? Because a lot of the schools have had like technical difficulties and, you know, issues with the computers. Um, and I actually spoke to one parent last week and he was actually telling me about how sometimes he actually he has to actually let his kids use his laptop, right, when they have other difficulties. Mm-hmm. Has mm-hmm. that been something that you had to go through? Um, in the beginning, it was. But I would say the team at the Mosaic and Charter was pretty prompt with being able to do it. It just, um, just more of getting the kids adjusted to, to using that in schoolwork and them also using it as, you know, for pleasure. I think that was our most difficult task. Okay. So what were, what would you say were your biggest difficulties in transitioning into the homeschooling? Um, finding how, you know, all of a sudden you're taking your children out of a full day environment where they're with their friends and they're outside and stuff and you're putting them in home in a box and you have to figure out how they learn that way. So it was figuring out how they learn differently and just seeing what, you know, what works for them and what doesn't is trial and error. Oh, absolutely. And I would have to say, I know for the children, that definitely must be hard, right? Because it's like they're used to being in a setting where they're with other kids all the time. So mm-hmm. how was that? Um, how was it like having to kind of explain to your kids, right, that you really can't be around other people at the time as well? Um, it was a shocker. Um, it took a while for them to kind of understand. But um, after a while, they did get to know the safety around it and they got used to it. And um, they had, they would have break periods online where they could talk to their friends. So they did break it up. They were able to still make, make somewhat fun of it. Well, that's definitely good to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they need to have some kind of activity. And just with the online learning, what I would have, yeah, I guess with the online learning in general, what is the biggest thing to adjust to, like, with, like, the classes specifically that you would say that your children had to kind of, like, you know, hone in on? Um, Math. Okay. Um, Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it was kind of math just because, 
And that's it's just as hands-on as science would be. So it was like the core subjects just telling my sixth grader, okay, let's do this, let's read this. It just, it doesn't work. Yeah, I heard that. I, I, I can definitely understand that, right? And that's what some of the people don't understand is that mm-hmm. a lot of these skills that they're learning in class, it's very beneficial to have somebody there, right? Because they can show you things directly on your paper and you're not looking mm-hmm. at something and following mm-hmm. it. And so mm-hmm. that's a very different learning style that some people actually need. Um, I'm a hands-on learner, so I definitely understand that. Yes. Um, and so I know that you said you have one child under a public school system and another under a private school system, right? Yeah, charter school. Charter school. So yes. what would you say is, the, um, like, what major differences have you identified? Um, well, with the private versus the charter during the pandemic, for since they private had access to more um, safety, PPP materials. Um, They had more space just on their campus to do six feet apart and isolate um, a pretty good tactical team in-house just in case something did arise, parents were notified. Um, I just think it just was, it's just more money. It's just (laughs) more money. Yes. I, yes. I I don't think there's, (laughs) yeah, that's it. That's honestly it. Um, so what did each of them do well and where could they have improved at? I think they were both very optimistic to the change. Um, um, far as you saying as the schools? Yes. Mm, just as the schools. Okay. Um, yeah, I think they were both, um, even though my child couldn't attend, they were so communicative and they, they still offered the resources that, um, any support that they needed beyond and they were understanding. Um, you know, if if it was a day where Devon just was like, I'm just tired, I can't do it today. It's just too much. They were understanding. Um, they're very um, flexible and filling them in. Um, same thing. It's just the support was there for both of them. That's good. I'm I'm happy to hear that because a lot of people don't have that experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely good. So let's fast forward to now. Are your children back in school physically? Yes. Good. That's really mm-hmm. good. I um, mean, there's been a lot of criticism with the schools reopening. Do you feel like the school district, this one particularly, has taken appropriate measures mm-hmm. to keep the children safe? I do. I think they gave it enough time that they could, but for the um, mental health of our children, I think they, they, they handled it fine. Okay. I think that's a good perspective. I don't think that that's something that a lot of people have honed in on is like it being the mental health of the children, right? And it's very important. Even if it's like, even if we do have to shut down again, just getting them in for a few months would be a lot better than just not doing that at all. Okay. And just as an add on, so what's your take on other issues surrounding schools? Like the asbestos, lunch shortages, and lead in school, and even, like, faulty delays in communication. I don't know if you had witnessed that, like, a few weeks ago after Hurricane mm-hmm. Ida. Um, some parents didn't even get that message until, like, noon. Yeah. Um, and that's all over. Like, I know right now they're even struggling with transportation. Um, but Yes, that's they, a big thing. Um, but they did offer a program where you can get reimbursement. Um, if you can find a way for your children to get to school. So I think they're trying as a school district. Um, like generally it goes back to investment of money. Um, 
I just wish, you know, like how we have all these developers invest in apartments that they could invest in the schools too for every development that they make. <laughs> that would That's be awesome. <laughs> that would be <laughs> awesome for us, like, especially in my Germantown community. Um, even if like a fifth of their fifth of their development or even their expertise doesn't even have to be money. It could be materials to just rebuild the schools to make sure, you know, just to help out. That would be awesome. But I think as a school district for what it has, for what it is, they're trying. Yeah. You know, and also it has to be the families too. You have to think about it too. It can't just be the teachers and the staff. Yeah. It has to be it has to be a community. It has to be all of us to help. It takes a village. And I mean, that's not just a saying. It's an mm-hmm. actual practice that you have to put into play. Yeah. And so is there any advice or affirmations that you would offer other parents as a parent who's lived through the pandemic? Um, definitely don't hesitate to ask support. Um, even if it's um, just someone to talk to, um, share your story. Let it out. <laughs> You're not alone. Um, things will change. Things will get better. And just have patience. Great. And um, so I already, we talked about your work um, earlier. How can people continue to support your work? Um, so they can like me on Facebook as Sophisticated Leaders. Um, I run a continuous GoFundMe that I use to support any children that I, um, I babysit or have to take under my care because I do offer um, pro bono services just in case parents have appointments or something like that. So um, liking me on Facebook and giving me review would be the best way. Great. We love to hear that. And just the last question, since this is a conversation about reflection, what's one thing that you've learned in the last year that you'll cherish forever? Because like everybody has that norm, you know, how everybody was like talking about Mm -hmm. norms and things of the sort, but now we have Mm -hmm. new norms that we're like, Oh, I'm not letting go of. (laughs) Yes. My would be, um, for a while I was stuck in this. I had to have a job nine to five. I would say if you have, something that you want to do inside, whether it be open up a store or start a club, do it because life is short and you have to live your dream and your dash. That's a good way to end. Well, Justina, I want to just thank you again for talking to the Info Hub and lending your experience as a parent to our other Germantown neighbors. This was definitely a great conversation, and I hope that we can have more like it in the future. And I wish you and your kids the best as you all continue your journey back this year. And we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Next week, we'll share an essay from Joy Ike, Germantown's mover, maker, shaker, who is bigger than her box. So to hold you over, we offer one of her songs. Hold on. And out of the plays that that fades, get ready for the whole entire song by Joy Ike. Like a candle burning in the dark, like the good skin underneath the sky. It's not what you want, but your hope is coming. Like an oak tree underneath the ground A small seed waiting to come out It's not what you want But your hope is coming Life takes all you got But your hope is coming
someone pulls them down You think for help, but they kick it to the ground It's not what you want, but your hope is coming Life takes all you got, but your hope is coming Well, Germantown, it's about that time. If you have a story you want to hear covered, please get in touch with us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com or text infohub to 73224 to start asking us questions. We also encourage our neighbors to follow us on Facebook at Germantown Infohub, Instagram at gtown underscore infohub, and on Twitter at Germantown Hub. And that is our show. Again, I am Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom John. This has been the InfoHub Radio Hour. Thank you for listening and engaging as always. Until next time, good night, Germantown.